This morning's habit is different than the other eight in that it's less a behavior and more of an outlook or a point of view. It's the habit of seeing yourself as the victim. Now, I see some of you nodding right now. Are you thinking of someone? Am I right to suppose that very few of us are thinking of ourselves? Yeah. This habit is one of the easiest to see in others, and it's one of the hardest ones to see in ourselves. And what I'm going to ask you to do now is to try your very best not to think of that other person who immediately comes to mind, and instead, let the light of what comes this morning fall on you, because you cannot help that other person grow. God has not made it like that. You can be open yourself to the habit that all of us indulge in from time to time, which is to face the adversity that we experience in life as if it's happening to us because, after all, we are the victims. The more you indulge this outlook, the less happy you will become, and the more difficult it will be for you to bear the light of Christ into the world. And even more than your happiness, in this moment, God is intending for you to catch light in here so that you bear his light out into the world. And when you engage in this outlook, you don't do a very good job of bearing his light. Here's how this habit works. You experience some trouble in life. Is there anyone here who hasn't experienced any trouble? No. Someone mistreats you or some good desire in you doesn't come to fruition. And now, in light of that disappointment, you have to decide how you will view yourself in the midst of that experience. You will not think of it probably, but you will unconsciously be doing this most of the time. You will look at yourself in light of what you've gone through, and in that moment, the question will be, how do you view yourself? One way to look at oneself in light of the legitimate misfortunes or, or injustice that we suffer is to see oneself as a victim. And when we indulge in that outlook, the outcome is predictably bad. It is not the only way to face one's challenges. And this morning, we're going to look at a text in the New Testament. And if you have your own Bible, you can open to 2 Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. There, we're going to listen to this man report on his own experience of misfortune. And what we'll discover is that there is a different way to face one's challenges that has a different outcome. And it's rooted in a particular understanding of who God is and who we are as a result. Before we look at his words... Uh, which really are a, an account of every kind of struggle that a person can experience. Let me share with you what he went through and see if you can relate. Paul was a man who, when he decided to follow Christ, lost many of the relationships that he used to depend on. Has anyone lived through that kind of disappointment? The loss of relationships. He also faced real challenges at work, not only from competitors, but also from colleagues. 
Has anyone here lived through something like that? Yeah, this was a man who knew from the inside what it was like to experience that kind of thing. How about this one? He suffered from long-term physical infirmity, and though he asked for God's help for a long time, nothing changed. Can you relate to that? These are the words of a man who had every reason to see himself as a victim, but instead of doing that, he looked at himself in a different way with a different outcome. Find your way now to the fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians. In verse 8, we'll hear a catalog of what he and his fellow disciples went through. And listen, first of all, for his description of adversity. Verse 8 reads like this. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Here we have four descriptive clauses, each one with the report of an extraordinarily positive outcome, capturing what it was like for this man to go through the trials that his life included. Let's take these clauses, first of all, one at a time, focusing on the challenges he names. We are afflicted in every way. In Greek, the word afflicted means under intense pressure. What do you go through that makes you feel like you're under intense pressure? Maybe it's your parents' expectations of you or the requirements that you face at school, or the threat of those friends over there and what they might be thinking about you or saying about you. Uh, Maybe it's uh, concern that you have for the direction that your children's life is taking. Maybe it's your spouse's never-ending criticisms or the project that your boss put on your desk, and you don't know how to manage it. The challenge maybe of providing for your family, what is it for you that puts you under intense pressure? That's the first kind of affliction. Can you relate at all? Yes or no? Yes. Look at the second one. We are perplexed. I hear the word is confused, baffled, clueless. (laughs) Have you got any problems in life that are so complicated you have absolutely no idea how to face them? Maybe it's complexities of your family life or your work life or or this uh, culture that we find ourselves in. You look at the problems. They're so tangled up. You say, I am at my wit's end trying to imagine how I could possibly move through the complexity of these challenges. That's the second kind of adversity he knows from experience. Look at the third. We are persecuted. Here the language comes from the world of hunting. The term means to be under attack like an animal is pursued by the hunter. Here's where relational challenges are described with poetic power. Have you ever felt like you're under attack? That person who used to be your friend turned on you and suddenly they're against you. Or a colleague who was an ally became an adversary. Or, or maybe it, it's a marriage where the one spouse who loved the other, suddenly everything shifts, and now instead of being four, it's like you're under attack. Maybe you can relate to that. He lived with that kind of challenge as well. Look at the last phrase. We are struck down. This one's from the world of athletics. The verb here 
is at home in the wrestling ring. When a person is up against an opponent who's stronger and that person pins them down, that's what it means to be struck down. Someone who has more power over you uses it against you rather than for you and you lose. I know enough about human beings to know that most of us can relate to at least one or two of these. Maybe you, right now as I describe this, can relate to all four. It's important to note that this was the report of a man who struggled like this as he was trusting Jesus and following after Jesus. I'll tell you this, that uh, you can choose not to follow Jesus at all. If you do make that choice, you will experience a unique kind of difficulty in life. I promise you that. There is no escaping the trials and affliction that meet us because we're human beings. And if you don't follow Jesus, I'll tell you now, most of those trials that you face will be unredemptive and unredeemable even, miserable. But here, here we see that even those who walk with Jesus, and I know many of you are doing your very best to trust him, we also should expect to face adversity in life. I'm not telling you something you don't know, am I? No, we can admit it together. The outcome of adversity. You will have learned to believe that the outcome of adversity depends on how hard it actually gets. That's what you've been conditioned to think. It's not true. It's not. And I'm telling you as a person who, because of his job for decades has been exposed to people who are experiencing various kinds and magnitudes of struggle. And I'm telling you, the outcome does not depend on how hard things actually are. I've seen people who have faced what anyone would say is a minor difficulty and it's taken them to pieces. And I've been in the presence of people who've suffered things that I think on my best day, I wouldn't last two seconds and they keep going powerfully, and it's because the outcome of adversity is determined by our outlook on adversity and not how strong the struggles are. And I've seen that, and it's clear in what this man describes as he names the adverse conditions he's walked through and each time says that nonetheless he's survived. You, right now, wherever you are in life, whatever challenges you are facing, Please listen to me. Do not believe that the outcome depends on how bad things get. It's not true. In large measure, it will come down to how you choose to see what you're in. Let's dwell for a little bit on the habit of seeing yourself as a victim. Again, you maybe will let that person that you thought of at first come to mind. The person who sees adversity as if she is there at the center because after all, she's just so unfortunate or he never catches a break. That person believes that they have no other way to face life's challenges. That also is not true. I will tell you this as well. The outlook that a person takes is not connected to how they've been victimized. I've seen people who have been horrendously mistreated and abused and have been genuine victims in every way, and yet they've decided not to look at themselves if they are the mistreatment that they have suffered. Have you ever seen somebody like that? Do they inspire you? Do they inspire you more than, yes. <laughs> yes. It's proof. 
It's proof that even people who have been victimized do not need to fall into this rut of seeing themselves in that way. And if you have been mistreated and that's how you've learned to look at yourself, you're in a good place right now because God himself wants to liberate you from that outlook. The person who has developed a victim mentality is the person who has, over time, learned to attribute all of the adversity in life to his own identity. It's just who I am. Think of that for a moment. So that he interprets each negative experience, the little ones, the inconveniences with the weather or the traffic, as if they're aimed at him personally because he's just so unfortunate. I suffer because everybody is against me, because nothing ever goes my way. It's just how it is for me. Now, when a person begins to believe this, they will have a very easy time of finding proof of that outlook in the world around them because of how messed up the world is. Do you know that? And one of the best aids that they have to this outlook is the internet. I'm serious. The miracle of it is that you can find immediately a dozen enemies who are aligned against you and you can be incensed and enraged, never ending. You can have this idea fed that they're against me and it's so bad for me. Do you know that? Now, as I said earlier, you're probably not thinking of yourself. I was not thinking of myself when I was writing the words that I just said to you out loud. But the roots of this outlook live in me and in you, in every one of us. And we should be open to that so that God can liberate us from the way that we're trapped, even in small ways, from falling into this rut when we face challenges and adversity. And I mean of every kind, the inconveniences of your children or the teachers who assigned that homework or the difficulties that you're running into over and over again with your spouse or your brother or your sister or, or work or your children, whatever it is, you will always be invited in all of those moments to say, how will I see this instance? And the roots of this victim outlook start small. Here's the first thing. You ready? Okay, when I look over my glasses, that means... Are you ready? Yeah. Perfect. The person who is inclined toward the victim mentality, when trouble comes, the first thing they ask is whose fault is it? Not how can this be fixed? There's a disagreement right away. It's their fault. Because blame for this person is more important than a positive solution. And, and so looking for someone to blame, they'll always find that other person to assign blame to, and that habitual instinctive reaction to trouble means you will not be working toward a solution. You'll be telling yourself over and over, it's their fault, and, and thinking of that will give you no positive momentum to, to move forward, and, and that person's gonna become your enemy in your heart. And this is, this is as obvious as anything when you look at the news stories that are out there that pit us against one another by labeling us us against them. But what it does is it makes each side feel victimized by the other, and so there's no positive energy to move forward. Do you do this sometimes? Okay, good. Now, if you follow this instinctive reaction to trouble, to, to find someone else whose fault it is, there's a second point of view that will also be very common for you. The victim pays more attention to what cannot be done than to what can be done. 
It's just more attractive to say, since they did that, well, now I can't do this. Never mind that, listen now, this is strictly true. No matter what they do, there is still always another option for you. Always. God has made it so. If one door closes, you know, they say a window opens. There's still every other door that you could go through except for that one. But when you nurture the roots of this victim outlook, you will just keep looking at what cannot be done rather than what can be done. And and that will make it so the misery that you focus on becomes more and more a part of your outlook on not just life itself, but your view of yourself so that over time you'll begin to feel helpless. Because you're looking at a, a problem you can't fix, so you'll feel helpless, absolutely powerless. Do you do this sometimes too? Yes. Yeah. If you keep that up and you've got all of this misfortune to focus on, uh, the third viewpoint that always follows is that you will find people in your environment who are doing better than you are and you'll compare yourself to them. And that will give you something else to feel bad about. You'll find somebody else who's more fortunate And you'll just look at them and you'll say, if only I was where they are, then it would be better. And the secret is you have no idea what it's like to be them. You are deceived by an enemy that wants you to feel miserable about yourself. And that enemy plants seeds that are lies in your heart and says, that person over there, they're doing so much better. He's doing the exact same thing to them. And and in that moment, You're going to just sit there and feel like if only I had that education or that opportunity that they had over there or that spouse or those kids or whatever, that vacation or the food that they've, look at that food that's on their Instagram. I wish I had that. I always get hungry right around 11.45. If you're stuck there, the fourth thing that is a guarantee is that in that place, you will be at the center of everything. And it's, it's rarely thought of, but the truth is the person who's got a victim outlook is very self-centered. And I don't say this, please understand me, in a condemning way to you. I say this in a descriptive way to us. When I'm blaming and focusing on what can't be done and feeling powerless and comparing myself, I am selfish. I, this guy, you do the same. And right there, we are tilling the grounds of our hearts so that the enemy can plant this outlook on ourselves of being victims that will ruin us and ruin us so, so we have no joy in our lives and make us absolutely impoverished witnesses for the God who meets us in every adversity and tells us, you do not have to be overcome by this. Now, I want you to open your ears here and your heart's ears right now to this, because this is magnificent. The difference between seeing yourself as the victim on the one hand and the alternative that makes it so the adversity that Paul and his friends faced on the other is not that you should figure out how to be strong enough. You can't. I think now if someone here is feeling like, yeah, I do, I do look at myself as a victim, and I indulge in that habit, you might be inclined to feel bad about yourself. And that's exactly what the enemy wants. And you might be inclined to think, okay, now I'm going to get a a, a set of steps to take from this pastor, and I'm going to apply myself to this, and then I'll start to win instead of being the victim. It's not that either. But it is true that God, in this instance, is eagerly I would even say wishing for and longing for your liberation. 
as Paul and his friends were liberated despite the misery that they walked through day after day. If you come back to the text where Paul described their challenges, and now if you look at with me at the outcome of each one, you'll see the miracle. Look at it. Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Intense pressure crushes people. And so he can say, we are under intense pressure, but we're not crushed. Everything, it's piling on us, but we're still strong enough to go. How? Look at the next phrase. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. The challenges that this guy faced, believing in God and knowing God's care and concern and and decision for his own people and the people of Israel, and yet they reject Messiah. It's impossible to figure out. He's perplexed, but he's not driven to despair. He knows it's beyond him to understand why things are are as they are, but still he's fixed and confident and settled and mentally and emotionally secure. Look at the next phrase. He's persecuted, but not forsaken. The man was hunted down and attacked. Literally, his own life was sought. Because he was trying to share Jesus, he was, there were people trying to murder the guy. And yet, in that moment, he refused to believe that he was forsaken by God. He said, it's this hard. I will never believe I'm forsaken by my father because he's with me. Still, look at the last one. Struck down, but not destroyed. Struck down means weaker than my opponent. Do you see it? He doesn't say, I'm stronger than the enemy. No, I'm weaker. I'm pinned. And yet, I am not destroyed. Why not? How is it that all of these positive outcomes are his? Despite all of these challenges, the answer is a matter of the point of view that Paul chooses to take of himself. And that point of view is his because of what he knows is true about God. I'm going to slow down here. I'm going a little fast, aren't I? It's Jersey and the caffeine. And, and it is this. It is my thrill to imagine that God would speak to you. And I mean you. And you, I think about you. I don't know all of you, but the ones that I think of and I know, I, I wish that God would speak to you now. It is what is true about God that was revealed to Paul that made it so instead of looking at himself and saying victim, he looked at himself and he said vessel. Okay, it's not, I'm, he didn't say, I'm not a victim, I'm a victor. He didn't say that. He didn't say, I'm not a victim because I'm too strong to be a victim. No, he didn't say that either. He said, when I look at myself, I can survive this because I know what is within me? Who is within me? And it's right here in verse 7, immediately before this description. He says there, but we have this treasure in clay jars. So that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. If you think that you're supposed to be strong enough, sister, be relieved of that lie. You're not The extraordinary power belongs to God. And you are the weakest possible vessel in all of antiquity. That's what a clay jar is. It's something that is made to hold something until it cracks and then it's thrown away. It's like like ancient Tupperware. (laughs) 
in all of the vessels that could be named. It is the most fragile, the most prone to crack under pressure. He could have said we have this treasure in stone jars or in, in, a, in an oak chest gilded with gold because it's a treasure. No, clay jars. That's the self-image. So you are invited to say, I'm not a victim. I am a jar of clay. And what is within me? It is this treasure. And what he means by the treasure is in verse 6. And I'm going to say this to you now. You can read it on your own. The treasure is the glory of God, which is revealed in the face of Christ Jesus. That is the treasure which Paul carries in himself. It is God. And by God, he means the one who created the whole universe and every, every single person and thing that can possibly cause you to feel suffering and struggle. All of that was made by God and the treasure that you right now are open, you're, you're ready to receive it. If you are willing to trust Jesus is the glory of God, the light that comes from the face of Christ Jesus. Think for a moment of the face of Christ Jesus. I know Paul had something specific in mind when he said that. He was thinking of the love that shone in the face of Christ Jesus. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. Christ fulfilled his messianic mission when he allowed himself to be unjustly crucified and placed on a cross. In the moment when he was supremely victimized, Jesus refused to see himself as a victim and instead saw himself as the vessel of God's love for you personally right now, right here. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, it was for the sins of the whole world, and that includes you and me, all of us. Every person who believes it and trusts in it, the person who doesn't think it's true and just thinks it's some cliche that gets repeated a lot in church, you too, all of us, he came and gave his life, allowed himself to be victimized so that none of us would ever have to look at ourselves as a victim. And instead, we could be the vessel of the light of that kind of love in the world wherever we are placed, whether we're thriving or whether we're languishing. And right now, this morning, if you would open your heart to receive the gift of God's self in the spirit of Jesus Christ who dwells within whoever trusts him in the power of the Holy Spirit, you also can look at yourself as a vessel and not a victim from now on. Amen. Amen. Do you see that? If you take it to heart, listen to me now. If you take that to heart, the example of Paul teaches us not to believe that from then on we'll never suffer adversity anymore. No, that's not true. We still will. But listen, no matter how cruel or twisted the behavior of another person is toward you or toward the people that you care about, no matter how evil or profoundly wicked or irredeemable and, and inexcusable this uh, other behavior is, no matter how mysterious and wicked the suffering that you have to go through is because of loss that you should never have to live with, no matter what happens out there, it does not have the power anymore to determine your well-being or to change your fundamental and the most true thing about your identity, which is that you are a beloved daughter of the Most High, a beloved son of the King of all, who is still in these moments ready to go on and not be crushed, not be perplexed, not be forsaken, and not be overwhelmed. That is for you.
I'm going to read in closing, and maybe I might comment on it. We'll see how I feel as I read it. <laughs> a statement of faith, which is not an idea that can be proved or argued. It's just the expression of a man who knows that what I've just said is true. And I, I'm telling you now, open your heart to hear the word of God, would you? This is Romans 8.31. What, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Yes, the answer is yes. He will give us everything else. He gave us himself and everything else is ours as well, including the, the strength and the power to go on persevering even through the challenges that are in your mind still right now. Verse 33, who will bring any charge against God's elect? Paul asked that question because he knows that once the truth of God's goodness is proclaimed, some people are gonna start thinking, I don't deserve it. Do you ever bring a charge against yourself? You ever feel guilty still, even now? Look at what he says. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. If the adversity you face is the result of your stubbornness or your supreme stupidity, right now, Jesus is beside the Father saying, they are mine. I am the only one who can judge them. And I say, innocent, free of that sin. I died for it. I've taken it away. They're mine. He continues, verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? He thinks of everything that could possibly do it. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. He's saying yet again, we still struggle. We still suffer. We still have every reason to look at ourselves and think of ourselves as victims. But how does he look at himself? Look at verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Do you see that self-image? more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, open your heart again, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. One last thing, and this is confessional. Pastors are often perplexed about a lot of things. I'm sure you are in your work, and you could tell me about it, but I'll tell you that being a pastor, there are a lot of things which I wish I knew, but I don't know. There's a lot of those things, and, and some of those things are related to you personally, uh, when, when some hour I sit with somebody from this congregation and they tell me about their challenges, sometimes I'm thinking, I wish I knew the words to say, and I just don't. Sometimes I wish I could know the outcome for the kids or the faith of, of, of your spouse or your families or your career. I, I, I wish, and I can't know that stuff. But one thing 
that I am not in doubt about ever is whether there is anything which can separate any one of you from the love of God in Christ. I know that for sure. Nothing can do that. And I've never wondered about it, and I never will. And that's the last thing I want to say. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the gift of your word, which speaks not only to our ordinary ears, but awakens our hearts and our spirits in a way that we need. I thank you that even as I read your word this morning, it awakens my heart. I thank you for the way it kindles the fire that you lit in me a long time ago when I was younger. I pray that the wind of your spirit would be in this place and in the hearts of every person listening, in the hearts of those who are listening at a distance too online, to fan those embers into flame or to ignite a new fire within the hearts of those who are being born a second time. Give us the maturity and the sense of responsibility to own the way that we choose to look at ourselves when we suffer. Help us remember that it's a lie when we face a challenge that there's nothing that we can do through the way we choose to see it or respond. Also, God, liberate us from the sense that it's up to us. Help us remember that we are weak, weak vessels, but we are vessels of a treasure which is so powerful, it, it brought into being the entire universe with a word. Be within our hearts now and within our church now, within Renaissance Church as your community so that we shine your light brightly in the world. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. And all God's people said, amen, amen.